started tonight. Father, we just come into your presence tonight, Lord God. And Father, uh, I, I rejoice for my brother, Lord God, uh, because I know he's in your presence. But Lord God, my heart's broken for Lisa and for those boys, Lord God, and for that mom and dad. Lord God, just the, the weight of that loss has got to be enormous, Lord God. And Father, with all the things that we encounter, that we go through, uh, Father, those things really pale in comparison to the to the loss that that family's feeling, Lord God, to have their sons, husband, Lord God, and dad just, uh, stripped from them, Lord God, in such a tragic way. But Father, we know that you're able, Lord God, to be the, the one that comforts, Lord God, in the, the most dire situations. You can calm those storms. And so, Father, I, I thank you, Lord God, just for uh, his friendship, Lord God, and what he meant to the body of Christ at large, Lord God, his years of serving the church, Lord God, as a pastor, Lord God, as a friend of pastors. Uh, Lord God, I, I thank you, Lord God, for the reward of his life to so many. Lord God, so strengthen Lisa and those boys, Lord God, and the family over this next week as they prepare, Lord God, for the memorial service, Lord God. And I pray in Jesus' name, Lord God, that uh, many of those that come, Lord God, that may not know you at that service, Lord God, would be uh, convicted, Lord God, of, of sin, and Lord God, the words that he had spoken to them for years and years, Lord God, that they'd come to bear, Lord God, and much fruit being born from his life. And so, Father, as we come into this place tonight, Lord God, we thank you for your word, Lord God, which is still the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord God, to come to you, Lord God, to, to, to hear and to receive with you. Uh, Lord God, what you desire for us, Lord God, just for the equipping of us, Lord God, for the work of the ministry. And so, Father, I just confess, Lord God, in and of myself, Lord God, I'm incapable. And, but, Father, I thank you, Lord God, for your provision, Lord God, of your spirit, Lord God, of, 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 of your uh, wisdom, Lord God. And we just ask tonight, Lord God, that you would just... Open your word up to us, Lord God, in a fresh new way, Lord God, to better equip us, Lord God, to touch the world, Lord God, with the message of the cross of Calvary. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> amen and amen. Uh, folks, tonight we're going to continue in our expository study uh, through the epistle of Galatians. Uh, specifically, if you want to start opening your Bible to chapter 5 and verse 23. Chapter 5 and verse uh, 23. Um, you know, as you're, as you're turning there, I'm, I was thinking about this, that we can never really lose sight of the reason that this letter uh, was written to begin with. Uh, you folks who participate, as maybe here locally uh, or somewhere through Facebook, uh, in our 90-day uh, our challenges that we do throughout the year, and, and just really that saturation of the Word of God. You know, one of the reasons I, I like to push people towards that, because it gains context. You know, it's one thing to just pull a verse out. You hear people when they're trying to raise money, you know, give and it shall be given to you. Press down, shake it together, running over. Uh, you know, that sounds good because it has the word give in it when you're trying to get money. But really, within the context, it's a, it's a mercy passage. And so with whatever measure I'm measuring out, mercy-wise, it's measured back. Jesus, uh, you know, really iterated that in the Beatitudes when he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they obtain mercy, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that shall he also reap. So it's not a, uh, simply a, a money issue. It's, a, it's contextually, in that case, it's a, it's, a, it's a mercy issue. And so it's really good to, to look at things and constantly remember the context of a letter. I think about... Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, especially the first letter, very corrective letter. And so there's certain things that certain denominations have, have, have pulled certain passages out. Maybe that 14th chapter in regards to the gifts of the Spirit. And they want to nullify the gifts of the Spirit uh, because of what was written. You know, where, uh, where there be tongues, they shall cease, and things of that nature. But it was a corrective letter. So I've got to read it within the context of that. And so I don't want us to lose sight of the context of what Galatians uh, was written for. So the apostle, he really, uh, he had taken the, the message of the justification uh, through faith to this people. And uh, in this region had obviously been tremendously impacted by Paul the Apostle's ministry. And their response to the message heard, uh, there had to be such a tremendous transformational truth that had come in. And so I just think about the investment of that word, especially when we're talking along the lines of, 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 of many people in that area were, were just unbelievers altogether, pagans. In some uh, uh, some type of sec secular religion or something of that nature, but then you had those that have been affected, obviously, by Judaism. And so Paul the apostle comes in and he's investing his life and his time into this people, and he's bringing this revelation of justification by grace. You know, folks, think about it for you. Think about where you were at. Maybe you grew up, you know, semi-religious or whatever it might have been. But when Jesus Christ came in, and you legitimately realize what it was to be born again? Remember what it did for you? Remember the freedom, the, the light that came on? Maybe you were kind of walking within the semblance of religion, but you can probably remember, if not the day, but you can remember that season 
in which something just finally clicked. Maybe you've been in church for a while and, and you kind of gravitated or had a strong interest, but when it just settled into you, you realize that. I think about uh, 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 Luther. Uh, when he got that revelation from God, maybe you've seen that the, the, the movie the depicting Luther's life, when he came out of the Catholic Church and began the Reformation and nailed the 95 Theses upon the door and began to challenge all the legalism in the Catholic Church, just that revelation that he got. And so you can just imagine that message by Paul the Apostle who had been entrusted with that message. And you think about the enormity of what he saw when he got caught up into that third heaven. He was shown things and he was given that mandate to take the, the, the message of the cross, literally, and in, in the wholeness of it to the nations, to the Gentiles. And so you can see just how passionate he would be about that. And so you know that those people that he brought that message to had to have been uh, uh, impacted in such a tremendous way. And so having, having heard this message, then all of a sudden this group, these Judaizers, they came in and they attempted to introduce the law. And we talked about that uh, uh, really at length in regards to them wanting these people to be circumcised and, and identifying with, uh, with, with all the way back into Abraham, who the, the circumcision didn't account him for righteousness, and he believed God, and as a result, he was counted righteous. So you had those people, they wanted to, to bring that, the legalism into the equation. We see it today with, uh, with the, uh, the rapid rise of the Hebrew Roots movement. And, you know, you watch some of that stuff, and, and some of the arguments are very compelling. You do. I, I know I have a relationship with Jesus, but you, you hear the approach to, uh, to that legalism, and your flesh almost finds places to agree with something that would require something beyond the cross of Calvary. So Paul, in turn, he had to write this letter that we call the Galatian letter uh, to the church in order really to provide a kind of a corrective measure uh, to return them to the true gospel and away from the things that are associated with trying to bring mixture into the gospel of grace. And so this caused Paul to appeal uh, to the leadership at Jerusalem. You remember we talked about that. Uh, we also see it uh, described, what is it, the, ninth, the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. And uh, James suggested that the Gentile converts would only be subject to just a few regulations, uh, which was uh, you know, not eating things sacrificed to idols, or eating the blood, uh, keeping themselves from uh, sexual immorality. And uh, he said, you know, remember the, the, the widows and the orphans. So, you know, things that, that kind of uh, made a plumb line. I mentioned that it really was the advent of uh, denominationalism. So you had the, the Judaizers that kind of uh, wanted as much as that as possible. Then you had those that disbelieved in justification by faith. And so Peter, though, uh, with, obviously with, with Barnabas following, so he found himself yielding to that pressure. And so when the Judaizers would come, those who were Jeru uh, Jerusalem saw him eating with the Gentiles, they began to say, how are you going to do that? So Peter found himself uh, pulling back somewhat. Paul had to publicly rebuke him uh, openly for that gross error. And so we can say to ourselves, you know, what's wrong with, with keeping the law? You know, and I've heard, and the reason I bring this up, is I heard this recently. Somebody said, you know, listen, what, what's wrong with keeping the feast? What's wrong with, with doing those things? Doesn't it just kind of bring you back into a place of remembrance? Doesn't it kind of just put things in perspective? Now, now folks, that's coming from a guy who I really, I, I love studying the law from the standpoint of the types and shadows. I'm kind of a tabernacle guy. I've always, you know, my, my uh, aunt uh, uh, Vera, who's since gone to be with the Lord, you know, she kind of introduced me to some of those teachings uh, as a young man and it began to show me just a few of the types of shadows and it, and it really whets an appetite in me to look deeper into it. So I look at that, not as a substitute, not as I'm thinking to myself, man, I wish there was a place that I could go on the Day of Atonement and, 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 and see the, the high priest go in past the, the, the veil and sprinkle blood up on the mercy seat. It's not for that reason. But it's seeing the picture and all that detail of the, of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Ark of the Covenant, that, that hypostatic union of Christ Jesus, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and, and the contents of that thing. So for, for me, it, just, it, it, it really shows me the picture and the great lengths that God went to when he told uh, Moses, according to this pattern. And so he was wanting to show people this. And so you, you can see that some people say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the problem is that it doesn't simply, simply just keep a person hemmed in to some type of life that's consecrated. And I think people that would kind of delve into that initially, they'd think, well, we'll do that because it just keeps us remembering those things. It just keeps us, uh, those things in, in focus. Well, that sounds good, but the problem is, as I'm looking at what Paul wrote to the church of Galatians, it, it really does the exact opposite. I've known people that, that years past, dear friends, uh, uh, guys that I preach the gospel with, that, that, that something kind of sparked an interest to them. And they kind of started looking at things like that. And, and they had some real good information. 
And I found myself in conversations talking about the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, and them talking about certain feast days and things that interest them. But it not just keeping him in, but I saw them take a, a wholesale approach, obviously, uh, of departing from just what he said to another gospel. And, and literally, it didn't keep them hemmed in. It, it almost caused them to become embittered against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, who obviously was the, called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, he said in Galatians 2.18 and in verse 21, I'll just read them to you as well. He said, For if I build again the things that I destroyed, which was living under the law, he said, listen to this, he said, I make myself a transgressor. He didn't say if I build again those things that I destroyed or those things that I departed from. He said, I, didn't, I just keep myself mindful. And so a certain amount of legalism, maybe a prayer shawl or, or, or wearing a, a yarmulke my, on my bald head or whatever it may be. He, he didn't say those things were advantageous. He said, if I begin to build those things again, he said, I make myself a transgressor or one who walks contrary to the standards of God. Now think about that. With all of our endeavors to do these things or somehow to invite some type of legalism or the law into it, and so, because if I offend in one point, what am I going to end up doing? I'm going to offend in every point. So holding on to those things or adopting some of those things doesn't make me more righteous. What it does, it literally pushes me away from my source of righteousness. And I love what Paul says in verse 21. He said, I don't frustrate or I don't make of none effect the grace of God. Because if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He said, I don't want to frustrate or make ineffectual the grace of God. Now, if you think about that just for a second, if I want to adopt some of those principles of the law, what do I do? I nullify it. Why? Because we can't serve two masters. Folks, listen, you're either a law, you're either a master to the law of sin and death, or you're a master to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You can't serve both. And so if you try to serve both the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it's going to just push you all the way back into the law of sin and death. Why? Because that's where the offense is. And so attempting to follow the law only makes one a law breaker because no one, according to Romans 8, can adhere to the law. And as a result, what we've done is we place ourselves in a place of condemnation under the law rather than influence under grace. Now think about that just for a second. When I begin to in, in, uh, 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 encounter, I begin to embrace the aspects of the law once again, what have I done? I've brought myself once again under condemnation. Think about John 3.19, which we preach on the streets often, talk about light has come into the world in the middle of darkness rather than light. That's the condemnation. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Folks, the law came just not to make man righteous, but to do what? To reveal sin. Paul the Apostle said, listen, had it not been... For the law, I would not have had the knowledge of sin. And so, folks, listen. The law doesn't allow us to overcome sin. All it does is make sin completely evident in our life. And so Paul, once again, demonstrating that the very things that those advocating the law were trying to promise, which was living in a manner that was pleasing to God, were only possible apart from the law and in submission to the principles of grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, for us, listen, and, and we know here, I don't have, to, I don't have to, uh, to, to bemoan the point in regards to what grace is. Grace isn't a license to sin, but grace is the empowerment to live righteously. It doesn't say that, listen, I'm okay. It's not like grace when I worked in banking that people would say, well, I thought I had a five-day grace period. In other words, I can, I can not do what I'm supposed to do for five days, but as long as I do it in five days, there's no penalty for it. Folks, that's what, not what grace is. Grace doesn't say, listen, I'm gonna, I can go out and do all types of things contrary to the righteousness of God. But as long as I don't push it too far, God's okay with it. That's not what grace is. God forbid, is Romans 6.1. Am I going to continue to sin uh, so that grace can, uh, can abound? God forbid. Why on earth would I want to do that? Why? Because now I'm under the, the influence. So as we've seen in this fifth chapter, it says that the works of the flesh are manifested. They're obvious. They're Evident. In other words, you can see those things. I'll just read them to you tonight from Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. It says the works of the flesh are manifest, they're evident, they're very obvious. And it says there are these things. And he says it's adultery, it's fornication, it's uncleanness, licentiousness, it's idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such the like, which I tell you before is I... I've told you in time past that they, those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see kind of an echo, a smaller list of that in, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. 
And so all of these attributes, I want to say this, I want you to hear this. All of those things that I just mentioned, the works of the flesh, all of those attributes can survive under the law because they're only dealt with symptomatically. I want to say that again. All of those things, all of those wicked things that we all can recognize that are so obvious, all of those things can survive under the law. And the reason they can survive is because the law will never deal with the disease, just the symptom. And so it's simply that they're held at bay and they're never genuinely destroyed. We talk about uh, being a dry drunk, that you're a person that's always in recovery, that they're never free. That I'm in recovery. Folks, listen. I don't want to be a recovering sinner. You hear me? I don't want to just be that poor old sinner saved by grace but never really saved. Still in finding myself embodied in the very things that controlled me before I came to Christ Jesus. And so what the law does, all of those things can survive. It just keeps those things from being revealed. You know, Paul the Apostle, we know it quite well, that parenthetical statement in Romans chapter 7 where he's talking about his condition of the law. He said, listen, the things that I wanted to do, couldn't do. The things that I said I'd never do, I found myself doing. And he referred to himself as a, a, a wretched man. He had referred to himself, past tense before he came to Christ, as the chief of sinners. Well, it wasn't because he was out sinning. It's because those things were still alive inside of him. And as much as he was able to hold those back, things back, there had to have been a tormenting there. And you, you see the tormenting when, when he sought letters in Damascus to kill Christians. Why? Because that was the light to come into the world. You are the light of the world. So when we see John 3, 19, I don't, I don't think many times that we associate that with us. And so we go into a place like Bourbon Street to preach the gospel. We are the light of the world. Why? Because it's the word that was made flesh that we believed in that's come into our life. And so the Galatians 2, 20, we're, we're, we're crucified with Christ. And so as a result, we're identified with Christ. And so the Christ, that the word became flesh, he dwelt among us, but he also, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he dwells inside of us. And so the reason that the world feels condemned is because we who are possessed by Christ as his possession, his, his ownership, we show up into an environment like that and it begins to bring that conviction because the Holy Spirit's inside of my life of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so this, those attributes, those, those things symptomatically can only be held down, but they were never resolved. 1 John 3, 8, you know this well. It says the Son of God came to do what? To just hold at bay the works of the devil? To keep you from flying off the handle even though you really want to? Is that what it said? It says that, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came when He came in the form of sinful flesh and for sin to nullify His power over us. It came, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And this is done by grace through faith, not by the works of the law. Because if it could have been accomplished by the works of the law, then as Galatians says, that the, the cross of Christ would have been of none effect. It would have been ineffectual. It would have been, uh, uh, it would have been redundant. It wouldn't have had any purpose uh, to, to be served whatsoever. And so he came to destroy or to remove the obligation that we had to obey the flesh rather than obey the spirit. And so Paul's discourse to the church of Galatia, it was really summarized. And listen, I came to remove the obligation to walk uh, unrighteously from you by pouring out my grace and mercy through faith in what I've done for you at the cross of Calvary. And so all of those things that are manifested, those things that are obvious, those things can exist in the law. Those things can exist in the life of a person that goes to church every single week. There's people that hate their brother because of his skin color that sing in the choir, that preach behind pulpits. There's people that in their heart and in their mind, they're, they're walking in infidelity that teach Sunday school and work the nursery. Uh, there's people that, 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 that lie and, and steal and, 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 and take advantage of their employers that drop a check in the offering plate on a regular basis. Why? Because all those things do is able to kind of circumvent and kind of maybe offset, but they never really remedy those issues. But he said, when we obey the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verses 23 through 25, and we've looked at this, he said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, long gentleness, goodness, faith, which we covered the last time we met. Then he says in verse 23, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. He said, and they that are 
or Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. He said, and if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So tonight what I want us to address is really the final two characteristics that are associated with walking in the Spirit or the bearing of fruit of one walking under the influence of grace through faith. And, and I want you to kind of get that in your mind tonight. If I'm walking in the Spirit, it means that I'm walking under the influence of grace through faith. Now, I want to be under the influence. I don't want to be under the influence of uh, alcohol or some, uh, some type of drug, but I certainly want to be under the influence of grace through faith. Now, uh, some of you guys obviously have come from a, a background of maybe drugs and alcohol. You know, many of you have never uh, walked that, that line. But if you ever looked at a, a video or maybe the old... Uh, uh, those, some of those uh, television shows that, that show police chases and they pull somebody over and they begin to, to, to do the, the field sobriety test. You know what I'm talking about? And so, you know, obviously they could take a breathalyzer, but what do they do if they don't have a breathalyzer? Make a walk a straight line. And so there's certain characteristics that are associated with being drunk. They'll tell them, I want you to put your arms out and I want you to touch your finger to your nose. I'm just showing everybody that I'm sober tonight and I can walk a straight line. Don't want me to be up here and, and not keeping myself under subjection. They'll do that. What's interesting, they'll also do that with neurological tests. Why? Because those things, when you come under the influence, they affect you mentally, they affect you uh, socially, they affect you neurologically, and all those type of things associated with it, and obviously morally as well. And so uh, he, 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 he tells us that we're under the influence of either the law, which leads to death, or under the spirit, which is going to lead to life. And so going back up to Galatians uh, uh, Chapter 5 uh, and verse 23, one of those characteristics or one of those influences is that of meekness. That of meekness. Folks, meekness is not weakness. 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 Meekness is not weakness. Try saying that three times real quick. I haven't wrote down. I'm reading it. I can't even say it. Weak, meekness is not weakness. It's also not being spineless. It's not saying that I don't have... Kim's trying to do it over here. It's kind of tricky, isn't it? I think sometimes when we, we think of somebody that's meek, we think of someone that's shy or somebody that's bashful. And I, I think you're going to find out tonight that that's not necessarily what that characteristic means. It's, but, but here's the thing that's, that's kind of striking to me as I'm looking at this. That of all the fruit of the Spirit described here in Galatians chapter 5, probably the one... Uh, meekness, obviously, that may be the most difficult for us to understand or define is probably meekness. And it's simply because it's, it's not just one word within the context of what it's talking about that can describe that. I mean, I can, I can go up and talk about some of the other things, about uh, uh, joy and <coughs> long-suffering and gentleness and, and goodness and faith. and Those things just kind of resonate in us because we, we can associate with those so, so easily. But meekness is not something that people go around talking about. Something, man, I really like old Gideon. Man, he's such a meek guy. I may say he's a sweet guy or he's a neat guy, but seldom you're going to hear people uh, describe other folks. Yet the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, if I was forced to describe him in just one word, it could be described as the ultimate demonstration of meekness. Now that's a tall order if I'm saying, listen, if I've got one of those things and I'm talking about to describe who Jesus was when he came in the flesh, it, it was the ultimate display of meekness. And some, you know, some have, have defined it as, as strength under control, and I, I believe that's a, that's a, that's a fair uh, uh, definition. And, and, and I, you know, it's definitely that. But really, uh, it's something that more has the ability to describe as, as being able to, to rebuke without demonstrating rancor. You know what rancor is? It's just having hatred or, or ill will. I tell people on the street all the time that I'm witnessing to, I say, listen, just because we disagree doesn't mean I have to hate you. Because there's people that you'll see a lot, especially with the advent of, of social media and, and real-time news and things of that nature. You know, the second you, you, you have a disagreement with someone, many times it turns into just a big slugfest. And I, I talk to people on the streets many times, specifically those that are caught up in the, the homosexual lifestyle. You know, it's almost like the second that you oppose that, there's got to be a conflict. And I'll tell them, listen, because of who I am in Christ, because of what I know the Word of God says, that listen, I totally disagree with your lifestyle. But listen, I don't have anything to club you over the head with. I don't have any mean words to say to you. I don't want to try to humiliate you into, into not, literally wouldn't be repentance or some type of response. I don't believe that I have to call you some type of uh, charged epitaph or something of that nature. I disagree with you. 
And there's probably things that you disagree with me on. These are very serious things that I disagree with you on. Maybe we'll disagree on our favorite food or something. But none of those things mean that we, we have to have ill will towards one another. I disagree with you not because I hate you. I disagree with you because the lifestyle that you're living is putting you in, in variance against the very God that loves you enough to send His Son Jesus to die for you. And so meekness is the ability to rebuke, to be able to stand firm and to bring correction. You think about, what is it, 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he tells us that, uh, that, uh, that the time's coming when men will not endure sound doctrine. But he prefaced that by saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to preach the word, to be instant in and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke with what? All long-suffering and doctrine. Folks, sometimes we get in the doctrinal kick and we're not real long-suffering. You ever notice that? And sometimes we get into a long-suffering kick and we forget doctrine. But I like the way it puts that because that could be another word for that. I want you to be able to rebuke with meekness. And so it's bringing together long-suffering and doctrine. And so if I had a passage that I was leading you to, it would be right there in 2 Timothy, that shows you the demonstration or what he's challenging us to do in regards to the things of God and demonstrate. So it's, it's, it's being able to rebuke without being guilty of rancor, but it's also able to correct without condemning. You'll hear people come by many times we're preaching in an environment like we do, and they'll say, you, you're condemning people. Well, folks, listen. All of us in this place today, condemnation is way above our pay grade. And so if you hear about a criminal being condemned to death. Do the lawyers get to do that? The prosecuting attorney? It's above his pay grade. And so it's, it's left to the judge to, to issue that decree. It's somebody that's put into a place, and that judgment may come down from, from, from 12 people that have been selected as a, as a jury. And so they're the ones that get to, to say, listen, we, 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 uh, the, the punishment in this case is going to be that. But, you know, that's something that's above our pay grade. And so for us, we're able to go out and we can bring correction that doesn't say, listen, I want you to die. Or uh, I, I want you to be judged. The Word of God says that God judges no man, but commits all judgment into the hand of His Son, Jesus. Okay? But Jesus came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And that demonstrated the meekness of Jesus Christ. Listen, I, I can condemn you, but I'm not going to condemn you. Not yet. I'm going to give you space to repent. So I'm demonstrating, like we said, the, the strength that's under control. Even though I could do something, I've chosen not to do that in order to demonstrate the other side of that quality that goes with the doctrine, goes with that truth, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. But I'm also gentle. I'm also long-suffering. I'm, I'm forbearing for those things in your life. But it also allows us to assess without arguing. You know, the Word tells us to, uh, to avoid vain debate, right? It does. But in order to kind of bring an assessment, and assessment is, is another word for evaluation, sometimes you have to kind of probe just a little bit. What do you think about such and such? Not seeking out an argument. Folks, listen, I've never won an argument and won a soul in the process. Never. And I've won arguments. And I didn't win the argument when somebody says, listen, if you prove such and such to me, I proved it to them. Well, are you ready to, to, to change your position? Are you ready to come to Christ? Well, not right now. Well, I just won the argument. Shouldn't you just? Shouldn't I, I browbeat you with all of my facts and my figures? And I, I, I've, I've been the apologetic whiz, and I've backed you into the proverbial uh, uh, corner. Shouldn't you respond? Well, no, because folks, listen, we're still saved by grace through faith, not of work. Even if those are the works of the flesh, they want us to walk in an argumentative type of nature. <coughs> and really the other thing that it does, it describes meekness, is to be able to lead without lording over. To be able to lead without lording over. Now Jesus Christ is obviously Lord and Savior, but he thought it not robbery to be made a little bit lower than the angels. He came and he humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant. And even though he was Lord and King, he didn't lord his position. At any time, he could have called angels uh, uh, down from heaven to remove him from the cross. The, the scripture tells us that. But he, he wanted to provide leadership as an example. So when he gave us the example in, in Matthew 16, 24, that if we're going to be his disciples, that we deny ourselves, right? We, we deny those, those things that had once described us. We take up our cross. We identify with him. Then we follow after him. In other words, we go where he's leading us into that place. And so 
It's the ultimate balance of leadership and servanthood. And so it's Christ's likeness at its peak. And so if I'm describing what meekness is, it's the ultimate uh, uh, demonstration of being Christ-like. It's I'm leading, but I'm serving at the same time. That's what meekness is. And so if I want to walk meek, it means that I'm willing to demonstrate the qualities associated with, with a standard bearer or a leader. But at the very same time, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to offer myself to live my life altruistically or for the benefit of other people. So we look at the scripture in uh, describing Moses in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3. It says, now the man Moses was not just meek, but it says Moses was very meek above all men who were born on the face of the earth. In other words, he was the, he was the demonstrate, the old covenant epitome of walking in meekness. And, you know, I, I love the example that he said because, you know, there was both times where he, he led and he also labored for the people. You know what I'm saying? He, he led and he labored. And so he was a man who stood in the presence of God to receive for man a, a clear direction, but also he stood in the presence of God to plead for mercy in times that God wanted to wipe them out. I mean, think about it. When, when, when the people rebelled against God and they found themselves in idolatry, God said what? He said, let me just wipe them out. I'll just start up another people with you. And so this one that stood in the presence of God, that God said that he spoke to him face to face as a man spoke to his friend, a, a person that was in, a, in an unprecedented type of relationship with God, that God said, well, let me just wipe all those people out that are giving you headaches, that are stiff-necked, and we're going to rise up, we're going to raise up another people through you. And folks, listen, if I wasn't walking in meekness, if I wasn't walking in a Christ-likeness, it'd be easy to say, man, it sounds like a plan to me. Man, me and you, God, you know, you're right. There ain't nobody else around that, that, that deserves to, to live or to walk or to be a part of this. Okay, God, let's get after it. Wipe out those people because, man, the, the, they've been holding me back from my promised land. Those people have, 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 have caused me not to be able to make a beeline to where I need to go and, and hold me up. Let's do it. But this one that stood in the presence of God, this one that, that walked uh, uh, with God and saw God, God spoke to him face to face as a man spoke to his friend, that God gave the law and, and with great detail, then he stood in the, in, 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 the, in the midst. He was one that, that stood in the gap for people. And so when God wanted to destroy all of those people, he pled for, for God to, to, to at least extend them mercy. And he did this not because he condoned their behavior, and thought that God was not justified in it, but because in the strength that God had given him, he knew that the withholding of judgment sometimes was more effective in, correct, in, in correcting and applying judgment itself. Folks, I've got that sometimes as a, as a pastor, as a leader, that I've had other subordinate leaders say to me, man, what you really ought to do is such and such. You ought to kick them out. You ought to lay the wood on them. Man, you ought to really show them. Man, they don't deserve this place, or they don't deserve to be in the church or whatever else. And, man, there's something inside of me that said, you know what, you could. You could be justified in doing so. But they'll never learn the lesson that the Holy Spirit wants them to do if we do that. And so it would force us to kind of draw back and to allow Christ, rather than Troy, to rise up and to demonstrate a quality that says, listen, man, we're going to be long-suffering. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna allow that to kind of just play out. We're going to allow that thing to, to demonstrate itself in a whole other regard. Folks, sometimes that takes time. Sometimes it's not a short amount of time. Sometimes it's days and sometimes it's weeks. Sometimes it's even months and even years when you see people come back around. And I've seen that. I've seen people that maybe from my position of, of leadership that I might have been justified really to, to drop the hammer on them. It never did. And some people might have seen that. It's just a weakness in leadership. But the easy thing from a position of strength is to speak into a person's position of weakness. And you've heard me and I've preached that at nauseam for years, is never speak into another person's position of weakness from your position of strength, because that's not what Jesus did in his meekness. Rather than saying, listen, I'm going to strictly raise up this standard of the law, and if you don't do it, there's never going to be another hope for you. But what did he come down? He came down to fulfill the law, and he said, if I'm lifted up, then what will I do? I'll draw men to me. And so I came down, he said, as that one that was meek, and that one that was lowly of heart, that one that gave his life a ransom. And I identify with mankind. I didn't crush mankind. 
And he even looked at mankind that had violated everything about him. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them that, that, that we would be justified in destroying. Forgive them that had violated every precept and every bit of righteousness. Forgive them that were handed the law and still walked in, in, in discord. Forgive them. Because God, they don't know what they're doing. See, folks, that's meekness. Because outside of meekness, we'd say, listen, enough's enough. How many thousands of years have you had to get it together? It's time to lower the boom. But instead of allowing the boom to be lowered on man, he allowed the, the boom to be lowered on himself. Folks, that's what meekness looks like in our life. We allow ourselves to have the boom lowered on us in order to provide an opportunity for someone else to see Christ Jesus through that action. The next thing that talks about the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit is that which is temperance. Temperance. And temperance literally means to possess a power or possessing of a power, to have mastery over something, to be continent, not to be a continent like the continents. It means to have self-control. That's what it is. So if you have somebody that's incontinent, that means that they don't have self-control. Um, it's interesting, 1 Corinthians, once again, a corrective letter, just like Galatians is that Paul wrote, uh, gives us a couple ways that fruit's used. And, and the first one that we see is in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 9. And, and we live in a day and age where, you know, if, if ever there was a time that this probably needed to be preached in regards to this fruit of the Spirit, it's, it's probably in our day and age with the, the, the proliferation of uh, sexual immorality and pornography and all these things that are, that are so readily accessible and have, uh, have really crushed so many people. Uh, in in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 9, this is talking about demonstrating temperance in the regard to uh, sexual desire. He says, speaking of marriage, he said, but if a man cannot contain himself, he said, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. And so if there's not self-control outside of the covenant of marriage, then marriage is the means of self-control given to provide a place of mastery or power over the issue of sexuality. And so what he's saying, listen, if outside of the covenant of marriage, you can't demonstrate mastery or self-control over the issue of sexuality, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you into a covenant relationship that's going to provide you a vehicle to provide mastery over sexual immorality. You, you see that? So when we look at the, what the Word tells us, that two is better than one, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, what the, what, the, what the marriage covenant does is for that person that says, listen, man, I can't, I can't remain single in my life and, and have mastery over my thought life or over my sexuality. What God says is, okay, I'm going to give you another vehicle, the only other vehicle wherein mastery can be enjoyed, and that's within the marriage covenant. So I'm going to put you together with someone else. Why? Because if two are together then what do they have? They have a greater report. They have an ability because if one's cold, the other can keep them warm. If one falls down, the other can pick them up. And so within the, the, the marriage covenant, for those that can't contain, what it does, it provides the vehicle to strengthen you to have the ability to walk in self-control. So self uh, sexuality within the marriage covenant is an example of bringing oneself under self-control. And in this case, under the control of the power of the covenant. Wherein sexuality outside of the confines of marriage demonstrate a lack of self-control. I want to say that again. Sexuality within the marriage covenant is an example of bringing oneself under control. And so if somebody can't contain themselves outside of marriage, self-control says, listen, I'm going to put myself within the vehicle that is designed to strengthen me in an area that I don't have strength. So do you ever think about the marriage covenant, you guys that are married or even uh, newly married, as the marriage covenant is a vehicle for self-control? It is in the testimony of a lack of self-control. Self-control by being able to endure, as Paul the Apostle uh, mentioned right there in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is one mechanism. But if that mechanism isn't working, the other mechanism is the marriage covenant. So marriage then is not meant to see as a demonstration of a lack of mastery, power, or self-control. But rather, it's another mechanism wherein it's carried out. And you'll look at it in, 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 in 2 verse 6. Paul said this. He said, because there's so much sexual immorality or the lack of mastery over that area in, in, in the singleness, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own 
husband. So I'm going to show you the remedy, he said, in regards to self-control. It says, because that thing's rampant, man, I'm going to give you a way to overcome. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a way to admit defeat. Folks, listen. Marriage isn't an admission to defeat over lack of self-control. What marriage is, is entering into a covenant that allows you to have victory over a lack of self-control. But it says that the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. What does that do? She allows somebody else to have that authority over her, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. And so you're bringing a master or mastery into the equation. And so he says, don't deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourself more completely to prayer. But afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan can't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so what he's saying is within the marriage covenant, when those things don't exist, it demonstrates a lack of self-control. It doesn't say you're controlling yourself. It says you're not controlling yourself. In other words, what you're trying to do is really what the Galatians were being told to do is, I want you to function in righteousness with the law. And so within the marriage covenant, it provides the vehicle for self-control. And so within the marriage covenant, when we're walking in mastery, it means we're doing exactly what it says that we should do in verses 3 and 4. So outside of marriage, self-control is demonstrated through abstinence from sexuality. Inside of marriage, self-control is demonstrated in sexuality. So you see the difference. Outside of marriage, it's abstinence. Inside of marriage, self-control is demonstrated with sexual intimacy. So this is the adult conversations that we get to have. And so I want to give you this kind of a note that, that the, under the law of Moses, who was called the meek one, right? The meekest man that ever lived. You know, divorce was permitted only in the cases of what? Sexual immorality, adultery. And today, divorce is rampant. One of the reasons that divorce is so rampant is, is infidelity and immorality uh, in marriage that are just really almost celebrated. Television shows. and There was a, a, a program that came out, I think, 10 or 15 years ago. It was called something about house, desperate, desperate housewives. And, you know, you'd see the write-up on that. It was always about these women that were cheating on their spouses and all these type of things. And so it's being celebrated. It's making Hollywood money. So uh, Moses said, listen, uh, it's only permitted in the case of a lack of self-control. In other words, going outside of the means that God gave you to another means. And so 2 Timothy chapter 3 predicted this in the last days. He said perilous times will come. And you remember one of the things that he said? People will lack self-control. They'll lack temperance, the ability to walk within the confines, either in that covenant that allows you to walk in self-control within the confines of marriage or the abstinence that allows you to walk in self-control uh, outside of the covenant of marriage. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, I told you he gave a couple examples of, of this temperance. 9.25 he uses as an illustration of an athlete in regards to self-control. And I'll read that to you, 1 Corinthians 9.24-27. He said, don't you realize that everyone runs the race, but only one person is able to obtain the prize. So I want you to run in order to win. All athletes are disciplined or demonstrate self-control in their training. They do not win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step, not as though I'm just shadow boxing. He said, I discipline my body. I bring it under self-control like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Obviously, Paul the Apostle wasn't a MMA fighter. He wasn't a marathon runner. He wasn't professional athlete. He didn't do this. But he used those examples. And so when he's talking about I'm bringing, I'm disciplining my body, I'm bringing their self-control, he obviously, what, he was using a, a sports analogy as someone that was like Howard Cosell. And some of you are too young to remember Howard Cosell. He was always commenting on sports, but he never played the game. And I think he wrote a book called I Never Played the Game. And so Paul the Apostle never played the game, but he was using it as an example of saying, listen, I'm bringing myself under subjection for a purpose. And self-control is self-discipline. It's with the design on realizing that doing so qualifies one for a prize, but not doing so can disqualify someone from a prize. So when he's talking about self-control, he says, listen, I'm doing that because it qualifies me to win. Folks, listen, 
You're never going to be qualified to win. I'm not talking about winning. You're never going to be even qualified to win without self-control. Do you hear me? You, you may say to yourself, listen, you might be in the race, but you're never going to be one of those ones that are expecting. Folks, listen, every single year, you look at races like the Boston Marathon or the, or the New York City Marathon. Tens of thousands of people sign up for that. But if you'll look at the odds on favorites, they can tell you before the race, they can give you ten names, and they're going to tell you out of all of those thousands upon thousands of runners, the winner is only going to be named within those top five or ten people. Happens every single time. They'll tell you. They're seldom unless there's some person that cheated that's going to not be in the top ten that's going to win the race. Every single time. And so they're not believing, like, man, that person came out of nowhere. That person was working at a grocery store, you know, eating, eating double whoppers and pizzas all the time. And all of a sudden, he signed up for the Boston Marathon and came out of nowhere. He beat the guys from Ethiopia and Nigeria and all of these, these runners that had, 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 had been on the national school. So there's no, there's no accident. There's no, man, I can't believe that happened. There's no Cinderella winner in the long-distance races. And so what qualifies you or what gets you mentioned Within those, it says, listen, that person probably, they have a good chance of winning. So it wouldn't be an altogether crazy thing to happen and, or a surprise if that person came out on top. Folks, listen, without self-control, man, you may be one of the 10,000 people that has signed up and you may have a number on a bib, but it's just going to be like upward basketball and it's just a participation bib because nobody ever expects you to actually win the race. Folks, is that why you got saved? Did you get saved that maybe you could cross the finish line or get to heaven? But did you get saved thinking, you know what? Man, I'm just going to be a part of the pack. That's what Paul said. Listen, only one obtains the prize. That's why he said in Philippians, he said, listen, I haven't obtained, I haven't, I haven't crossed that line yet that we see him cross in 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4. But he said, one thing I've learned to do, I forget those things that are behind. I forget the lack of discipline behind. I forget the law that's behind. And he said, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Folks, listen, if you're going to be named in the breath of those that have a chance of winning, it's not going to happen apart from self-discipline. And so you look at some examples that he gave. One of the, one of the good examples, I think, on discipline is eating. You know, uh, no offense to our uh, <laughs> the Holy Ghost honeymooners. Amen. But according to the CDC, over one-third of American adults are considered to be obese. And according to a 2016 report, the diet industry is presently a $100 billion a year industry. $100 billion. And over a third of all Americans are considered to be uh, obese. Think about Proverbs 23, 1 and 2. Some of you guys know this. It says, when you sit to eat with a ruler, he said, consider diligently. He said, what is before you? And put a knife to your throat if you be given to be a person of appetite. That's harsh, isn't it? In other words, if you're not demonstrating self-control within that environment, he said, man, you'd be better off cutting your own throat just to shut yourself down. And, and folks, I'm, I'm not talking about something that's, we're not talking about self-control that's measured in pounds, but, but in really in control. Because there's skinny gluttons and there's fat people who fast and eat healthy. It is. So it's, it's not an issue of body type or body composition or what somebody looks like. It's an issue of self-control. There's certain times, like, on your honeymoon that you need to banquet. It really is. I mean, that's the time. If you're going to be eating gigantic chicken fried steaks and stopping in, in and out and enjoying that time, I mean, that's giving the time to that. But I tell you what, you can't do that all the time. Otherwise, you're going to be like those that find themselves suffering physically and, and, and those things happen. Yeah, you can have a piece of cake. You know, you can do, but just don't have the whole cake. You know what? Go eat pizza. Just don't eat at the buffet pizza every single day or there's going to be consequences. So, we can see even in those areas of self-control that it has to do it. And, you know, I say this all the time. Once you get the fat gene, you've always got the fat gene. But you know what? Once you're in a battle, until Jesus comes, you're always in a battle. And so whatever that self-control looks like on, in your respect, uh, 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 self-control in prayer, or reading the Word, or whatever, eating is a good example of that. Uh, another one is conversation. The words in your mouth. Uh, James 1.26, you guys on Tuesday nights have been studying the book of James. And so this is... Uh, you know, very uh, apparent to you that have been looking into that. He says, those who consider themselves religion but do not keep a tight rein over their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. And then he goes on a couple chapters later, verse 2, he said, indeed, he said, we all make many mistakes. He said, but if we can control our tongues, if we can bridle our tongues, he said, we would be like a perfect man 
and we can control every aspect of our life. Isn't that powerful? Uh, Psalm 19.14 says, May the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart be pleasing, O Lord, uh, my rock and my salvation. May the words of my mouth and by the words meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. And so even our conversation needs to be ruled in and reined in through things of self-control. I was talking to, uh, uh, to somebody just the other day talking about uh, a conflict they were in. And, you know, the Word tells us that a kind word turns away wrath. Sometimes saying, I'm sorry, even when you weren't the person that did something to be sorry about, calms the circumstance down. Sometimes just being willing to bridle your tongue and not throw fire on a controversy can calm things down. And so part of self-control is just that. I'm going to watch what I say. And folks, when we're not walking in self-control, what happens is what we're going to find ourselves is saying things that we would normally not want to say, doing things that we would normally not want to do. But it says, verse 24, Galatians 5, it says, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust. In other words, if I'm really walking in the Spirit, what I've done is I've put those things at that place where he's at. Galatians 2.20, back to our text, our context, I'm crucified with Christ. And so if I am Christ, what I do is all of those things that would cause me to walk contrary to what he wants, the affections, the lusts, the strong desires, I'm putting on them at that place where I'm allowing Christ to deal with them, to bring me under subjection, to manifest himself. Because if we live in the Spirit, I mean, if you're born again in here tonight, you're in Christ. And so if we live in Him, we live and move and we have our being. And so if we're alive tonight, if we're born again, we live in the Spirit. He said, but if we live in the Spirit, we ought to also walk in the Spirit. And so to live is that decision that we made, faith in what Jesus Christ did. Not faith in what our works, it's not works. This is Ephesians uh, 2 and 8, just restated another way. That we're saved by grace through faith. Not of works, lest they mention boast. Well, the second half of verse 25 is the next verse that said we're created unto good works. And so if I'm going to live in the Spirit, if I'm going to lay claim to a relationship with Jesus, and He's my Lord and Savior, then shouldn't my life, shouldn't the fruit that comes out of my life be demonstrative of that? He says, let's not be desirous of vainglory. In other words, let's not put the attention on ourselves. Let's not do anything that we do to, to be narcissistic, not to be part of the selfie generation. But let's not be provoking one another or even envying one another. In other words, we need to live as Christ lived. This isn't what he's talking about, provoking one another to better works. That's just through living the demonstration of your life. So our life and the testimony if we're walking in the Spirit, it's got to be that type of spirit, that type of life that's constantly bringing people back to the cross of Calvary. Amen? Did we finish chapter 5? Okay, we'll finish that next week. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word, which is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path, Lord God. And we're asking you in the name of Jesus, Lord God. Father, we, we want to walk, Lord God, through that which we live. Lord God, you're in us, Lord God, and we want the demonstration of our life to be a testimony of you, Lord God, through us, Lord God, to the darkened world. So, Father, we thank you, Lord God, for just the opportunity for your spirit to work in us, Lord God. And we want to walk, Lord God. We want to walk in meekness, Lord God. We want to walk in self-control and temperance, Lord God. But we know we need your strength. We can't do it in and of ourselves, Lord God. So we thank you for that. Father, we ask you to bless our...